Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Andy Metzger, reporter at Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm here with Justin Silverman, who's the executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition, and with Representative Josh Cutler, who recently authored the book Mobtown Massacre, Alexander Hansen and the Baltimore Newspaper War of 1812. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. The scene is Baltimore, probably a sweltering hot morning in July of 1812. The nation is going to war with England. There's a mob outside of a house. They've dragged a cannon. Inside the house is a local newspaper publisher and his buds armed with muskets. And fresh from his country estate, the mayor of Baltimore comes into the house. And what does he say, Representative Josh Cutler? So, well, he he is attempting to broker a peace between uh, the Federalists that are secured inside the house and their Spartan band and the mob of angry uh, men outside that uh, basically want to silence the newspaper and and kill the Federalists inside. And what's his proposal? So his proposal is to uh, let the Federalists be escorted to the city jail so they can be deposited behind bars where they will ostensibly be protected from this uh, oncoming mob. Unfortunately, they were not. And uh, as soon as the city leaders kind of let down their guard and went back to their homes, the mob came back and struck again, and they broke into the jail. Uh, they may have had some help in some regards from a friendly jail keep, uh, and they were able to, to get inside the jail into the passageways where the cells were uh, held. And inside were a band of Federalists led by Alexander Hansen and about uh, a dozen or so men that they referred to as their Spartan band. And the mob broke in and uh, basically commenced a massacre, which I, I can, was later described by one report as a scene of horror and murder ensued, which for its barbarity has no parallel in the history of the American people. Uh, that is, that's a short version of what happened. What actually happened is much longer and, and frankly more gruesome. Uh, Hansen and his cohorts were brutally tortured. Uh, they, the mob used hot candle wax to drip in their eyes. They, they gouged the men with sticks, uh, axes, rusty blades. Hansen was uh, badly beaten. Some of his compatriots, including um, a gentleman named Lighthorse Harry Lee, who is well-known as the father of, of uh, Robert E. Lee, was, his eye was gouged out. So it was quite a brutal, uh, br- brutal scene that ensued. And his great crime was writing an editorial against the America going to war against uh, Britain, right? Um, and there's so much different um, from the 1812 Baltimore than today. It seems like people had a lot of time on their hands to just mill about and riot and uh, with muskets, etc. But I wonder if either of you, and maybe starting with Justin, do you see any uh, parallels between that mob and society today? Yeah, there are certainly some parallels, but I, I, I got to mention the canon. Uh, <laughs> having read the book, that was the scene that jumped out at me the most because you have this group of people, this mob, that are so upset about what was published in a newspaper that they wheel a cannon across the street from the building to blow through to make their point. So we don't have mobs doing that now, and uh, we generally don't have uh, – large mob scenes uh, in front of newspapers every time there's a uh, controversial editorial, for example. Um, But to answer your question, as far as some parallels, we we certainly have mobs in other senses, right? We have social media, which has given an incredible platform to a large group of people. Uh, So anytime anything is said that might be controversial, uh, we all have the ability to go on social media, form our own online mob, and while we might not be using cannons or muskets, um, we're certainly using information or misinformation 
to attack the credibility of that, uh, that, that news story, that editorial, uh, tarnish the reputations perhaps of those that uh, wrote it. So there are other tactics at play, but there is certainly this same kind of mob mentality that can emerge anytime we have controversial information or controversial ideas being pushed out into the public. And I would say, you know, I, and it, things are obviously very different, but in some ways they're very much the same. And, you know, I was struck by the political polarization that was happening then that we talk, we, we talk about it now as, as if, you know, the parties can't get along, it's, things have never been as bad as they are, what was us, you know, we look back in the old days when everything was, public service was such a different uh, uh, time of, of uh, time and era, but it really wasn't, and it was it was just as brutal back then, much more so in many ways. You had you know the two uh, major parties, uh, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, and, and Hanson was was a strong Federalist and you know strongly uh, against this war, and it was very very divisive, and you know I would argue more divisive than probably anything we see today. So things change, but also they don't change at all in some cases. Right, and so and in some respects too. One of the ways it was different is uh, the mayor of Baltimore had very little control, it seems. There wasn't a real police force. You had to kind of rouse some local militia who were right. willing to go and confront these people. So how, how have things gotten better for publishers of even very unpopular or, or controversial uh, editorials? So, you know, Justin can, can maybe take the, the modern-day uh, answer. In terms of, you know, what happened back then, it was remarkable because, you know, you, in those days you call it the militia and the city militia. And unfortunately, in this case, the militia was mostly the mob. And so many of the mob members were, were also members of militia. So when they tried to muster the militia, very few men showed up. Uh, even the trumpeter refused to muster. So um, you know, that was sort of the conundrum that the mayor was facing. And, and he was um, no fan of the Federalists either, and yet he was sort of tasked with you know, protecting them. So it was, it was a unique situation with you know, sort of no-win uh, scenario. Yeah, I, and I would say uh, particularly when it comes to media, I, I think uh, we now have a more of an acceptance that these ideas are going to be pushed out into the public. That's the role of media to put different perspectives into play for people to consider. And you're not going to have uh, this violent uprising every time there's a disagreeable thought or opinion. Um, uh, outside of the media, I, I think just looking at the different ways that government acts to protect controversial ideas, you don't have to look any farther than the Boston Common. A couple of years ago, you have this one uh, one organization that uh, had some controversial ideas. Uh, they wanted to be on the Common, express those ideas, and then you had this large counter-rally uh, in protest. And what did, uh, what did the city do? They created this large buffer zone specifically to... Um, prevent any violence occurring between the two groups. So I think in some circumstances, you, you certainly see a lot more, um, uh, you see more, uh, you see the government being more proactive in preventing that kind of violence and stepping in um, almost to a fault to make sure that what we see, um, what we saw in this book didn't happen. Here. Right. Um, there's a quote too that I want to highlight that even though it was said in 1812, I could picture someone <laughs> saying it today. Um, and this is one of the members of the mob. This is at an earlier riot uh, where they yes. tore down the newspaper building. Um, and this Dr. Lewis, the, the mayor kind of wandered in there, Mayor Johnson. And this Dr. Lewis says, uh, the laws of the land must sleep and the laws of nature and reason must prevail. And so I can almost picture, you know, people saying to, ha to heck with, uh, you know, your laws and rules today, you know, 
it's time for absolutely some different. It's, it's order. very similar. Again, I was struck in many occasions with uh, the parallels that we see today. Obviously, you know, when you call the police now, they actually come as opposed to then. You know, they weren't part of the mob, uh, so things have gotten a lot better. But um, you know, that that's a great example. And 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 it uh, really, you know, that was the mob. It came three different times and tried to attack Alexander Hansen and silence his newspaper. And every time he he fought back and tried to defend the freedom of the press. And I think, you know, in a very small way, we owe some of the liberties that we see today because of folks like that who literally put their lives on the line to defend the freedom of the press. So, you, you know, you guys can do what you do. Right, and the news of this, it got around, and even, like, the president uh, commented on it at the time. W- what was the rea- the public reaction around the country when people heard about this? It was very much mirroring uh, sort of the, the political uh, spectrum in terms of, you know, the Democrats, the Democratic Republicans very much thought that, uh, the, you know, downplayed the mob and thought it wasn't that big a deal. The Federalists thought it was, uh, you know, the most horrific thing that had ever happened in the, in the nation's history. And they, you know, used it, they took advantage of it. You know, they used it for their political purposes, you know, shocker. Um, the, um, and, and here in Massachusetts, which was very much a Federalist hotbed at the time, Hansen was viewed as a hero because, you know, it was, he was a, the, the Federalist standing up against the, the other party, standing against the war, which was very unpopular around here. In fact, uh, after the mob happened, some of the Federalists tried to kind of rally around the country to, to help protect the newspaper and support it. And people took out subscriptions as a way of doing that. And in fact, one of the gentlemen who took out a subscription was uh, a gentleman here in Boston named Paul Revere, 77 years old, still fighting the good fight uh, after the revolution, took out a $10 subscription to the Federal Republican. To the Federal Republican that was, that was of Baltimore. Of, it was the name of the paper, yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And w- w- another thing that struck me about this whole episode is on the one hand, you had Alexander Hansen, newspaper publisher, but then the the mob attacking him in many respects was led by rival publishers who they weren't really standing up for the First Amendment principles. They were saying, I oppose this guy. Let's tear down his building and maybe hurt him very badly in the process. Yeah, the- <laughs> Has that changed much, Justin? <laughs> I, that's certainly something that, that jumped out at me is just the whole media landscape back then. You had very much a, a partisan press. Everyone was taking a side, it seemed, a political side. And since then, I, I think media has obviously evolved to now becoming, uh, with newspapers anyways, you know, being the paper of record and reporting the facts and being objective. But we've certainly now, I think, gone back a little bit anyways toward what we were uh, back then, where we have more uh, partisan perspective uh, in papers. We have uh, commentary masquerading as journalism, political commentary. And it's very difficult, I think, for the public to really distinguish, well, who are these objective journalists anymore? And who are those that are just giving this political commentary? And whose side is everybody on? And it's rare that you have uh, media of all backgrounds come together and unite under you know the First Amendment banner. Uh, you saw a little bit of that uh, recently uh, with the Boston Globe and their campaign for um, you know we are not the enemy in response to President Trump's um, declaration that media is an enemy of the people. So um, you certainly see in rare occasions that kind of collaboration among media organizations, but in my opinion, not nearly enough. And, and I fear that we are moving closer to a time where. Uh, media organizations are taking more of a political stance and, and choosing sides, if you will. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was saying back then, you know, it wasn't just that they were ideologically aligned. They were actually sort of organs of the party. Hansen's newspaper was a Federalist newspaper. He didn't disguise that at all. In fact, he was darn proud of it, and it, he put it in the, in the masthead. So uh, yeah, that, in that sense, it was very, very different, although you know, we do see a lot of ideological, you know, more so now, you know, Fox and, uh, Fox and MSNBC, you know, different ideological takes on, on the news. And, and Hansen's original strategy here, 
after he published one very controversial editorial and his newspaper building was torn down, then he decided to publish another... Basically double down. Double down, <laughs> but this time he holed up with a bunch of uh, soldiers of sorts who were like-minded with muskets, and that didn't, that didn't turn out that well for him or his compatriots, one of whom died. Just making sort of an analogy to today, how might newspapers be, and other news publishers or even opinion publishers be more smart about how they react to mobs who might want to tear them down metaphorically or, or not? <laughs> Don't do what Hanson did. <laughs> Do, do you have a good uh, a yeah, good approach there? Yeah, so so I think newsrooms uh, should be proactive and look to discourage mobs entirely. Um, one program that we have, our organization, is we uh, help newsrooms get out into the community and be more transparent about their work. I, I think a lot of problems arise because the public just generally doesn't have a good understanding as to how journalism works, what goes on in the news gathering process, um, that there aren't journalists going out to the street, uh, speaking to people, taking what inf information they get, and then simply publishing it without any kind of vetting process, without any kind of editorial discretion. Uh, so we're encouraging newsrooms and helping them get out into the community and really explain how they do their work, the entire process from start to finish, and why that's so valuable, and really distinguish their work from some of the other uh, you know, partisan commentary that might be out there um, that gets confused with actual journalism. And I think the, the more of an understanding the public has as to what real journalism is and why it's so valuable, the less likely you're going to see that kind of uh, emotional, um, you know, uprising over a, a controversial story because uh, even if someone, uh, a reader, for example, isn't excited to see that story or may have a difference of opinion, at least they know the process that went behind it and that everything was done in good faith and for a larger good. I, I think the, the internet is sort of... Um when you think about the paper edition you know, the, uh, of the newspaper, say the Boston Globe, you, you, you knew when you turned to the editorial page that you were going to get commentary. And you know when you're in the news section getting news. Online, that distinction is very much blurred. If you go to the homepage of you know, Boston.com, BostonGlobe.com, you, you can't always tell what they market, but it's, 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 it's less clear that here's the news and here's the opinion. And I think that does cause folks um, to maybe be a little bit skeptical more, more so of what they're reading. And um, so that, that's, that's a problem that I've seen more, I think I've seen more of as we've transitioned to, uh, to online news. And you were or are also a small town newspaper So yeah, I was uh, my family business, the third generation before I came into the legislature. I was a newspaper editor for 10 years. Obviously at a little small local weekly, so a little bit different than what we're talking about here. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I certainly... That was what actually drew me to this project. It was about Alexander Hansen, who was a local newspaper editor who then went on to be a congressman and a senator and unfortunately died at a young age. But um, uh, so it was sort of a drew me to that as a former newspaper editor, now turned legislator. I have no aspirations of, of <laughs> his future, but, uh, but you know, it was a very, it was a lot of interesting parallels that I enjoyed. And, and did you ever have anything close to a, a mob no, gathering like outside. That. <laughs> and, and Justin, does this approach where reporters or maybe editors or publishers do go out and try to explain what they're doing to the community, do you think that that works in lessening sort of anger? Yeah, that, that's certainly your hope. Uh, there was actually a, a report released uh, a 
few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, by the Knight Foundation that looked into uh, just how much trust, if any, there is between the public and the press. And one of their major, one of their primary suggestions was to have radical transparency, mm -hmm. uh, pull back that curtain and show how news is made and show what news is as opposed to uh, that other kind of commentary and take all those lines that have been blurred and clarify them for for the public and and I do I, I really believe that the more of an understanding that people have about those lines where they are and uh, how journalists do their job uh, the more respected there's going to be for the profession uh, and the less likely uh, you're going to have um, any kind of uh, violent reaction to something that's published yeah I agree I think it's important um, you know getting out behind the desk I mean you know Andy Metzger journalist who I see you at the State House. I know you're a fair guy. And even if I don't always agree with what you write, I know that I respect that you're going to do a fair job. Sometimes when you don't know the reporter at all and you don't see them, you know, out, in the, out and about on the beat, that level of trust or, uh, is a little bit less, uh, less developed. Yeah, relationships are extremely important. Um, I speak to a lot of journalism classes, so uh, undergrad. So these are students, uh, young students that are just starting to get into the profession. And one of the things that I emphasize uh, all the time is you've got to develop relationships with your sources. And these could be, um, you know, members of the police department, for example, someone that you might otherwise have, you know, an adversarial relationship with, but you have to develop those relationships. You have to maintain some kind of trust so you can do your job, do it well, do it without making any mistakes, but have a reputation for doing your job right um, and doing it in the right way for the right reasons. Um, this is a, this is a great book and there's illustrations and, and, other types of things throughout. Uh, do you, either of you have a like part of this book that kind of stuck out to you that you'd like to, uh, I don't know, just spend a minute on uh, talking about? Well, as the author, I, this, you know, <laughs> it's all parts of it. Um, you know, I really, I really enjoyed uh, writing this. It, it began, you know, I, I first learned that you know, a small town in, in Massachusetts was named after a, a fiery Federalist newspaper writer from Maryland, and, you know, that struck a chord with me. Why was that the case? So many of our towns are named after, you know, Mother England or a Native American uh, name, and in this case, uh, this the town of Hanson, which I, I represent, was named after Alexander Hanson. And so that kind of sparked this, um, you know, basically a love affair with d diving into this story, and I've really enjoyed telling the whole story as we were chatting off camera, just the little details about, you know, uh, a cannon being willed in or, or what the temperature was on a particular day. Those are the kinds of things that really, as an author, are really, um, you know, it's such a, a thrill to kind of to dive into and, and put on your detective hat some kinds and try to, to piece it all together. So picking just one piece is hard for me. Um, I, I really enjoyed the whole thing. I guess the, the jail scene really with the massacre happened is the, the acute point in the, in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, frankly, the sort of the brutal, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a, um, a tough scene uh, for folks because it is very, vi very, very violent. And is that jail still standing? It is not, no. Okay. I wish it was. That, was. that was at the time the new Baltimore City Jail, it, right? It, was, it had just been built, the Baltimore City Jail. Yeah, it was rebuilt uh, about uh, a century later. And there was one fatal casualty in that jail massacre, right? This General Lingen, who has sort of a, a distinction as being, well, yeah. do you want to explain? Yeah, so w when Hansen decided that he was, you know, after the first attack, instead of sort of going back home and, you know, taking his ball and so forth, he decided he was going to reassert the freedom of the press in Baltimore. You know, his, his parents had, a generation before, had fought for liberty in the revolution, and he kind of viewed this as his chance to step up for the freedom of the press. And so he recruited a band of Federalists, and he, uh, some of them were sort of 
compatriots of his that were his age. But he also recruited some more senior folks who had military experience because he anticipated that might be some some blowback. And some of the folks he, uh, a couple of folks that he recruited, one was Light Horse Harry Lee, who many folks may know as a famous general, uh, father of Robert E. Lee, and uh, another gentleman named James Lingen, who had been a, a hero of the Revolutionary War, had actually been a, captured and was a, uh, stored in a British uh, warship for over a year. So he was viewed as a, a elder statesman, a hero of the American Revolution. And so Hanson recruited these two gentlemen. And unfortunately, during the massacre, James Lingen was killed, and he was the first person killed. And in fact, um, later, flash forward to the late 20th century, and um, when the museum in, in Washington, D.C. set up their uh, tribute to slain journalists around the nation, the first panel they put up was to James Lingen, who was killed uh, in 1812, defending the newspaper from the mob. And in fact, at the time, um, uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton spoke at the event, and she in fact invo invoked his name and talked about the Baltimore mob massacre as the first incidents where an American was killed defending the, the rights of the free press. So it's. And is is there a moment, uh, Justin, that stuck out to you from the book? A scene? Well, you mentioned the canon. Maybe aside from the canon, <laughs> yeah, just the idea that a publisher would have to hide in a private residence, surrounded by armed men to defend his right to publish under the First Amendment. Uh, just that, that visual. Um, anyone interested in the movie rights, by the way? You know, this would make a, a great film. Manuel, actually, well, yeah. Emmanuel uh, Miranda. <laughs> Alexander <laughs> Hansen, not to be confused with Alexander I, Hamilton. And there's a lot of uh, similarities because they're both, you know, Federalists. They both were in a duel. Hansen was in a duel as well. Oh, whoa. Yes. Yeah, he, um, he actually, he, he almost killed a man. Um, he, this is before this incident happened. Uh, he had written a nasty editorial about about uh, a captain in the in the navy, who had been uh, right. in the Chesapeake, and uh, Charles Gordon. And when the when Gordon came back, uh, he challenged Hanson to the, to a duel. The two met two men met in 1810, and out, just outside the Washington D.C. Um, boundary, and uh, they marched off their five paces. They turned. Hanson got his shot off first and uh, struck Gordon in the, in the abdomen. And uh, he did survive, but uh, he never really recovered from the injury. So, times are different then. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so word, words have impact, um, but maybe people should cool it down a few notches before deciding that that impact is enough to take up a musket or a cannon, <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, and any any closing thoughts from either of you? Yeah, I, so I, I think this book for me was a, a great reminder as to how far we've come as far as the First Amendment's concerned, our appreciation for it. And while we still have a tremendous amount of work to do, don't get me wrong, we've come a long way. I mean, the, the, when it comes to First Amendment jurisprudence, like those cases, all of that, that case law, those Supreme Court, Supreme Court decisions that have uh, framed the First Amendment in the way that we all see it today, I mean, those really didn't start happening until the early 1900s. So here at this time, the First Amendment exists. It's written the same way. Those same words are written as they are now. Uh, but it wasn't perceived in the same way that it is now. So we, we've come a, a really long way in appreciating all of the freedoms that the First Amendment has provided us, particularly freedom of the press, and we've done a very good job protecting it. And it was a good reminder that despite all of the challenges that we're experiencing today as members of the media, uh, within our, you know, our current political environment, um, you know, we're still doing far better than we were you know, two, three hundred years ago. 
Yeah, I think if, if uh, you know, if, if Hansen had been alive today, and I'm sure the opposition party would have called him fake news, and, you know, and uh, and those kinds of terms. And, and so it's it's uh, instructive that you know things change, but they but they don't. Uh, but obviously, you know, freedom of the press was was just you know some words on the Constitution at the time, and, and it didn't have meaning until free press was actually you know imperiled. And uh, you know, this is during a time of war. Uh, when you're staring down the, the you know the, the the end of a musket, and you have to you know defend freedom of the press, it's a little bit different. And so you know the men that and the women who um, who who did that back then, I think you know we deserve to to look at their history and remember them and their contributions to the freedom of the press that you all enjoy and we all enjoy and appreciate, and it's contributed to the you know the fabric of our nation. Well, thank you both for a great conversation about matters historical and modern, um, and. Uh, Tell me, uh, Rep. Cutler, where, where can people find this book? So it's available in local bookstores and online, and I have a website, mobtownmassacre.com. And did you mention you're also doing some upcoming readings? Of that I'm doing some upcoming readings at the local historical societies. I have a, a variety of them coming up, and I have a list on my website. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.